Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kyle Meredith, and I host an interview series called Kyle Meredith With, where I talk to legendary musicians, up-and-coming artists, and whatever that is in between. I dive deep into the making of new albums, stories behind songs, but also things like how is Moby connected with the CIA, and did the Decemberists really thank Robert Mueller in their liner notes, and seeing which band I can get to reunite. Will it be Zeppelin, Genesis, Roxy Music, or Pavement? You've got to listen to find out. It's Kyle Meredith with from WFPK Independent Louisville and the Consequence Podcast Network. Consequence Podcast Network. I first heard about it from my friends Joe Gracie and Bobby Earl Smith. Uh, And Joe Gracie was a disc jockey on Coke FM. And Bobby Earl worked with Joe. And uh, these were kind of old school Austin hippies that were into country music. And Phil played him the album. And uh, Bobby Earl thought it was okay. Gracie hated it. He thought it was suicide. And, you know, Gracie was probably the best-known disc jockey and voice of progressive country music. Gracie didn't like it. Oh, fuck. He was only the first one. I mean, there were people were, we had a play for him, and they were going, what happened? The bright lights of Denver are shining like diamonds, like 10,000 jewels in the sky. And it's nobody... Welcome to the Opus... Season 4, Episode 2, brought to you by Consequence of Sound, Sony Legacy. I'm your host, Andy Bothwell, and we're continuing our deep dive into Willie Nelson's Red-Headed Stranger. That voice at the top of the show may sound familiar to you. That's uh, Joe Nick Petoskey, legendary Texas historian and writer. He was in the first episode for just a little bit. Well, he was hitting on something there that I find so vital to explaining the significance of this record. But I kind of want to take the long way to get to that, so just ride with me here. Trust I know where the hell I'm going. So, I want to talk about Wilco's album, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. If you know the story behind that album, then you might already see where this is going. You might be nodding along. If you don't, this has become like a Greek myth in the world of professional musicians. A story we like to tell each other around the campfire. We love it. I love it. Everyone loves it because it's a story where not only do the little guys win, but the big guys, the Goliaths, look really stupid when they lose. You see, back in 2001, Wilco was a pretty damn successful rock band from Chicago, making pretty damn good rock music. They were signed to Reprise Records, a subsidiary of AOL Time Warner. I want you to take note of that because it is actually important. 
year before that, they'd been given a nice advance, set up in a great studio, and knocked out a brilliant record called Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Now, previous to this album, they had made really solid rock records, but not anything I would call exceptional. And Wilco fans, chill out. It's my opinion. Don't get your jean jackets in a bunch. But Yankee Hotel Foxtrot was something different. It was lush. It was adventurous. A departure. It was truly a great record. But unfortunately, Reprise Records, a subsidiary of AOL Time Warner, did not see it that way. And since Wilco's contract granted ownership of the album to Reprise Records, it meant that Reprise didn't have to release it. And it could, potentially, sit on the shelf and never see the light of day. Wilco was, understandably, upset about this. Lawyers stepped in, and after a lot of back and forth, Reprise Records, a subsidiary of AOL Time Warner, decided to drop Wilco from the roster. And in a total plot twist, gave Wilco their album back, for free. A record that Reprise had already spent a lot of money on, just for some strange reason, decided to give it back, for free. I feel like they just thought that little of it. Saw such little value in the record that they tossed it back. Here, have your little art project back. Well, Wilco, after having gone through this whole ordeal, being dragged over the coals by Reprise Records, they didn't want to delay the release of the album anymore, so they, in a move that would prove to be way ahead of its time, decided to just put it up on their website, streaming for free, in 2001. Fans went nuts over it. It got like 50,000 hits in the first day, which was a lot back then. And it would go to quadruple those daily numbers of the next few months. Naturally, every label in the world saw this and got dollar signs in their eyes. And they all came crawling out of the woodwork, trying to get a piece of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. After what must have been quite the courtship process, Wilco finally decided on a label. None such records. Which was a subsidiary of AOL Time Warner. (laughs) So, for those of you keeping score at home, Reprise Records, a subsidiary of AOL Time Warner, gave Wilco a bunch of money to make Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, which they hated. They had such little faith in that record that they dropped Wilco and gave them the record back for free. Then Wilco puts it up on the internet for the world to hear. The world goes nuts. And then AOL Time Warner comes crawling back to them dressed as none such records. And Wilco sells that same record Back to AOL Time Warner for even more money. (laughs) God damn, I love that story. (sighs) Isn't it amazing? I'll tell you why I love that story. I mean, I love it for a lot of reasons, but I, I love it most of all because through all of this, Wilco never lost faith in their record. They believed in it so strongly that they put it up online for free in 2001 when no one was doing that without any fanfare, without a label to back them up, and they just let it speak for itself, and damn, that record screamed. Which brings me back to what Joe Nick Petoskey said about Redheaded Stranger. People had a play for him, and they were going, what happened? Willie Nelson finally, for the first time in his life, gets total creative control over his artwork. He gets to make the record he wants with the people he wants, where he wants, and he emerges from Autumn Sound Studios in Garland, Texas, 
with the dark, minimal, proto-Cormac McCarthy cowboy gothic concept record that is Red-Headed Stranger, and he starts proudly taking it around to play it for all his friends and associates, and everyone says... What is going on here? Willie had Hank Cochran come in to listen to it. And, and, you know, Hank was the songwriter that hired Willie as a songwriter in Nashville. Best friends. And he was watching what was happening down in, in Austin. Hank was, was charmed and blown away. But when he heard this album, he, he didn't know what to tell Willie. I'm going to interrupt right here to say, if you ever have the pleasure of interviewing Joe Nick Petoskey, you don't need to waste any time preparing a ton of questions like I did. All you need is one. To start him off and then hold on for the ride. We talked for two hours. This man is an encyclopedia. He is a Texas national treasure. God damn, he can wander off in the weeds. But I got to say, it is such a joy to get lost with him. Case in point. I mean, even one of Willie's friends at the time was uh, the best trial lawyer in America, Joe Jamail, this Houston trial lawyer who I can't remember how many billion he beat out of Shell Oil Company representing Pennzoil Oil in this, this lawsuit. He was richer than God. And, and yet, Joe liked nothing so much as hanging out with Willie. He knew Willie from the 60s, and in fact, he won a case famously by quoting Willie's song, Half a Man, and showing this guy couldn't have committed the crime because he's half a man. He didn't have all the abilities. So Joe, who's best friends and hanging out with Willie, he, he tells Willie, Willie, that album ain't going to sell shit. It's commercial suicide. Well, he wrote in Blue Rock, dusty and tired, and he got in a room for the night. He lay there in silence with too much on his mind. Still hoping that he was not right. You imagine that you make a thing, a thing you're so proud of. You bring it out to show all your best friends, people you respect, love, admire, your mentors, and no one gets it. It's exactly what it was like for Willie. No one got it. No one believed in it. No one except for Willie himself and Waylon goddamn Jennings. <laughs> Waylon believed in this record so much that when Willie's manager Neil Reshin goes to meet with the head of Columbia Records Bruce Lundvall Waylon comes along to perhaps drive the point home <laughs> Lundvall takes a meeting with Reshin who shows up with Waylon Jennings Lundvall is wondering one is you know Waylon's on RCA what's he doing here Lundvall said, this is nice. It's a nice start. It's spare. We need to finish this out. You're not done. This is a demo. You got to finish this. And Waylon jumped across the desk and got in Lundvall's face. And <laughs> I think the quote I had was, you tin-eared, tone-deaf son of a bitch. You ain't got a goddamn clue what Willie Nelson's music is about. And when Waylon's staring in your face, and God knows what he was amped up on, but Waylon can be an intimidating motherfucker. And and Waylon said he doesn't need a producer. He doesn't need Jerry Wexler. This is what he's all about. That's why I'm here to tell you that. 
That's probably the biggest favor Waylon ever did. Don't cross him, don't boss him. He's wild in his sorrow. He's riding, hiding his pain. Don't fight him, don't spite him. Just wait till tomorrow. Maybe he'll ride on again. So aside from Waylon Jennings... Everyone who's heard the album is all but ready to throw dirt on Willie's grave. Nobody sees the magic in Red-Headed Stranger. Nobody believes in it. Nobody but Waylon and Willie. But Columbia Records had to put it out because Willie had been given total creative control written right into his contract. So they released it, scoffing, thinking this would break Willie of his wild ways. And as soon as it flopped, it would send him crawling back into the arms of Nashville. I tell you all of this to say that much like that fantastic parable from the book of Wilco, chapter Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, the label bosses had no idea what they had on their hands. And in less than a year's time, after the tidal wave of red-headed stranger would wash over country music, crazy old Willie Nelson would become a household name, they would all eat crow. And much like AOL Time Warner had to come crawling back to Wilco, Nashville would come crawling on hands and knees to Willie. See? Told you I'd bring it all back home. <laughs> you gotta trust me. See, as the world turned its eyes to Willie Nelson, they turned their radios up whenever Blue Eyes Crying on the Rain came on. Overnight, Willie was vindicated. Nashville was scrambling to cling to his pigtails. Less than a year later, RCA Records pieced together a hodgepodge of previously released songs featuring Willie Nelson with his good buddy Waylon, some other folks who, according to Joe Nick, Ain't no outlaw. They branded it Wanted, colon, The Outlaws. They pushed that out to the masses. Piggybacking on the success of Red-Headed Stranger, it too rocketed up the charts. And like that, Outlaw Country was born. Granted, that was all marketing. Outlaw Country was just a cute name, ironically dreamed up by folks back in Nashville. But the die had been cast, and the inmates had taken over the asylum. Those weirdos smoking dope and letting their hair grow down in Texas were the new guard in country music. And Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson were the faces of the revolution. Can you imagine what that had been like for Willie? To stand on the cliff of his career, have everyone swear up and down that all his instincts are wrong. That his next step would be his last step. That if he were to put out Red-Headed Stranger as he envisioned it, he'd be committing artistic suicide. Only to have that next step not only make his career and make him a star, it made everyone else in country music have to change their careers to keep pace. He threw out the Nashville rulebook. He traded in his suits and boots for cutoffs and running shoes. He let his hair grow and his freak flag fly and the world loved him for it. Willie was emboldened. His faith was no longer in labels and bosses and the system back in Nashville. His faith was in himself and his art. And it is in this moment that Willie Nelson, we Willie Nelson, songwriter to the stars Willie Nelson, clean cut, turtleneck wearing Willie Nelson ceases to exist. And Willie, just Willie, the Willie we all know and love, is born. Oh, 
But in the end, fair weather friends may break your heart, dear. And if they do, sweetheart, remember me. Remember me when the candlelight's gleaming. Remember me at the close of a long, long day. And it'll be so sweet when all alone but I'm dreaming. It was not just the success of Redheaded Stranger and his grand moment of artistic vindication that was emboldening and shaping Willie and his band of outlaws. It was the environment, it was geography. It was Texas. Outlaw Country may have just been a clever branding coming out of Nashville, but the name stuck because it's, it's a pretty damn fitting description of what was going on down in Austin in the 70s. You know the Indians lost, but it was hard to tell in Austin in the early 70s. A hell of a lot of young people wore feathers and beads and necklaces and bells and doe-skin pants and skirts with fringes and moccasins and long hair and headbands. Look, I could sit here and I'd try my best to sum what made Austin so special at the time. But I'm never going to sum it up as beautiful as Willie did. So, Rebecca Bengal reads here from his 2000 autobiography that he wrote with Bud Shrake. It was cheap living, low taxes, no traffic to speak of. Billy Lee Brammer, who wrote The Gay Place, a novel about Austin, was legally blind without his glasses. But Billy Lee was forever taking a bunch of acid and losing his glasses and driving safely all over town in the middle of the night. Austin was a stable place that depended on the state government offices and five universities for much of its economy. There was no way to get rich in Austin. Only half a dozen houses in town would be allowed in Beverly Hills. People who did have money didn't show it off. Car dealers and beer distributors were big socialites. You couldn't legally walk around Austin smoking weed or eating acid or mescaline or peyote. Dope was very much against the law in Texas. But it seemed like you couldn't walk around Austin for very long without at least being offered a joint. Every few blocks in Austin, you saw some new unexpected vista. A Victorian house framed against the water in the Purple Hills, a pair of hawks circling above Mount Larson, a Mexican family eating dinner on the front porch of a house painted pastel yellow with statues of Jesus and the Virgin in the front yard behind a little iron fence. Barton Springs was the greatest outdoor swimming hole in the country. You could fish and swim in the river right beside your house. You could go out on Lake Travis in a houseboat and putter around hundreds of miles of shoreline for days before someone found you. For a population of about 250,000, Austin was a real piece of paradise, an oasis, the best-kept secret in America. The most famous musician in Austin when I got there was Jerry Jeff Walker. Janis Joplin had sung for years at Kenneth Threadgill's place in Austin, but she'd gone to San Francisco to make her reputation. Jerry Jeff and I had some wild nights and days partying and picking in joints in people's homes around Austin. Everybody wanted Jerry Jeff to play his classic Mr. Bojangles, but he never did like what to be told what to play or when to play it. If some host asked Jerry Jeff to play Mr. Bojangles or anything else at the wrong moment in the wrong tone of voice, he was liable to whip out his dick and piss in the potted ficus plant, and the fight would start. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> there, there was more live music played in joints in Austin every night of the week than in Los Angeles. Rock bands like Shiva's Head Band, The Conqueror, and The 13th Floor Elevators 
We're going from Austin to San Francisco and back to the Armadillo World Headquarters. The Armadillo World Headquarters was a center for the arts. You could buy jewelry and leather goods there, as well as beer and good food cheap. They booked acts from the Austin Ballet to Ravi Shankar to Bette Midler. Eddie Wilson, who was the ramrod of the operation, would try anything. Rednecks and hippies who had thought they were natural enemies began mixing at the Armadillo without too much bloodshed. They discovered they both liked good music. Pretty soon, you saw a long-haired cowboy wearing hippie beads and a bronc rider's belt buckle, and you were seeing a new type of person. Well, it's the same old song. It's right and it's wrong. And living is just something that I do. And with no place to hide. I looked in your eyes and I found myself in you. After Willie spent his whole life running all over the country, chasing down his dream, he finally found it in the hills around Austin, just two hours down the road from where he was born. Those limestone hills were fertile soil for Willie, and it was there he blossomed, and the new sound of country music grew right along with him. Around the same time, almost 2,000 miles away, New York City was doing for the punks what Austin was doing for the outlaws. Less than a decade later, that same soil in New York would be tilled and sown again with a new set of seeds, and out would come the b-boys and hip-hop. Willie talks in that passage from his autobiography about seeing the birth of a new type of person in Austin. A long-haired cowboy wearing hippie beads and a bronc rider's belt. That new type of person was him. And like the punks... And the rappers in New York City, that new person would change the world forever. You cannot overstate the significance of this moment for country music and American culture. And Willie was the one right there out in front of the whole movement, leading the charge. Willie was older than everybody else, had been around and been through the ringer than anyone else. And he was a poster boy for anti-Nashville because he came from Nashville. So he's going to be the standard bearer of we're not Nashville. And he could step out in front of the movement, and he did. And that's really, 73, he was not the big dog in Austin yet. 75, he's the big dog in Austin. top of the first episode, I talked about how great albums draw a line in the sand for an artist. Redheaded Stranger is that line. Because the Willie that came before it, the hustling to get by Willie, the clean cut Willie, the sitting at a desk in an office, churning out songs for other people to sing Willie, the Willie that laid down in the street, drunk and desperate on that snowy night in Nashville. That Willie is almost impossible to imagine today. He pushed all his chips into the center of the table. He bet it all on Red-Headed Stranger, and he won. After that, nothing could stop him from being the Willie he always wanted to be. The Willie we all know and love today. But we're going to get into all that next week. For the final episode of Season 4 of The Opus, we're going to talk to a ton of great artists about the impact of Red-Headed Stranger on their work, music today, as well as explore how Willie, emboldened by the success of Red-Headed Stranger, started to use his influence to impact worlds outside of music. 
We're talking farm aid willy, political willy, animal rights willy, and of course, we're talking weed and willy. So, be sure to subscribe to The Opus wherever you get your podcasts. If it is Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave a rating or a review. That does help us a great deal. You can find some great Willie Nelson playlists on all your streaming music services right now. But, of course, I think you should give Redheaded Stranger a listen if you haven't already. If you have and you're looking for a follow-up, check out Willie's album Stardust. It's a bit of a different vibe, but another great record that was way ahead of its time. I want to thank my guests Rebecca Bangal and Joe Nick Potosky for their help on these first two episodes. Couldn't have asked for a better set of folks to talk Willie with. Do yourself a favor and check out literally anything you can by either of them. Joe Nick's got a new book out by the History of Austin, and Rebecca writes both fiction and nonfiction. It can be found everywhere from Vogue to The Guardian to The Paris Review. They're such wonderful writers with unique voices telling really interesting stories that need to be told. Go look them up. I promise it'll be worth it. Well, I'm your host, Andy Bothwell, for Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy. And this is The Opus. Consequence Podcast Network. Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap... There is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts.